0: BBS was awesome.
1: Uh, the kids were awesome. It was great to come together as the body of Christ. And, and just across generations, uh, we, had, we had 70 years' bandwidth of, of servants, and that in and of itself uh, was, was worth doing just for that. And of course, the Lord did so much more. Romans 15, as you're turning there, God says in Psalms, In Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And we know that. We've read that. We have that needle pointed on pillows. Behold how good and pleasant it is for the body of Christ to dwell together in unity. And yet, isn't it true so often, we don't. And when we don't, when people around us fail to dwell together in unity, work against the body trying to come together in unity, how do we respond? What should our reaction be when disunity rather than unity seems to be the goal of those around us, when discord and division seem to be someone's primary objective? It's an important question. It's an important question because unity in the body of Christ is such an important subject. We can tell because Paul has been talking about it for like three chapters, for several weeks now. In in fact, even longer, I was going to say from the beginning of chapter 14, but really from chapter 12, Paul's been telling us that we're called to worship God with our lives. That's what he says in Romans 12, verse 1. We're called to worship God with our lives. We're called to turn from the world's way of thinking, Romans 12, 2, to God's thinking. No longer conformed, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. For three chapters now, he's been telling us how to do that. He's been giving us examples of that. And implicit in everything that he's been saying is the idea, is the imperative, that we should do these things together as the body of Christ. Worship God together. Put on the mind of Christ together. Love and serve one another in unity. That's been the implicit underlying message in chapter 12 and chapter 13. Chapter 14, Paul just put it out there. He just just hung it out. He put it on display. Look back at 14, verse 19. Let us pursue the things, let us, Together, pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify another. One may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food or anything else. Devote time and energy to unity in Jesus, to unity in the gospel. Do not divide the body around things that are neither Jesus nor the gospel. That was chapter 14. You're nodding. You're saying, yeah, okay. Yeah, that was last week. I'm back with you. Paul's going to continue in this same vein this morning. He's going to keep going with this theme in chapter 15, this theme of unity, this idea of bearing with one another, not using our liberty in Christ to stumble one another. Let's read what Paul has to say. Let's let him expound and expand on this theme. And then once he's done that, I want to come back to our question, what happens when we don't? What happens when someone fails to heed Paul's exhortation already in progress? What happens when somebody not only stumbles a brother, but intentionally fractures the body of Christ? Lord, um, as we look to your word, as always, we ask that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts to receive the things that you brought us here to glean. Lord, keep me out of the way of what your spirit wants to speak And we pray that you would illuminate your word for everyone's understanding. You've brought us together in your name. We ask that you would redeem the time for your glory. Amen. Romans 15 verse 1. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul's reminding us of what we say so often, of what we know but try hard to forget. Love costs, right? David said, I won't offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. David understood that love, real love, is sacrificial love, love that pays a price. And that makes sense if we think about it for even five seconds, because love, by definition, is others. And if loving others costs, that means unity costs. And if Unity requires that we set aside things for, for the sake of not stumbling others. If that means that, that we have to, to live in a way that might be irksome or inconvenient or even annoying, guess what? Paul is telling us that's what love does. Love is about others. So, in love, verse 2, let us each please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Let's put other people first which is everything Paul's been teaching, it's everything that Jesus was modeling during his time with us. For even Christ, verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. The Son of Man, we know this, did not come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come for himself, he came for us. He came to love us, serve us. He came to save us. And in doing that, he paid a price. In coming, Jesus paid a price for us. As it is written, still verse 3, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He bore his sin, I'm sorry, our sin in his body. The punishment for our sin fell on him. And why? Catch this, because this is where Paul connects what he's just been saying with what he said before. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Verse 3 so we could have unity with god the unity that was fractured in the garden the unity that was decimated by our sin jesus restored he paid the price in his body to restore unity for those who let him for those who trust him for those who call on his name amen that's the gospel we should say amen we should stop and, 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 and just raise a hallelujah when we encounter the gospel, when we remember the gospel. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus bore our wrath so we could be forgiven. And because of that, let's not lose Paul's train of thought. Because of that, Paul's been talking about unity. He's been saying Jesus models unity. Jesus models sacrifice for unity. He came to pay the cost, the price for unity. When we think about it, that's the whole point of his ministry. In fact, it's the whole point of the Bible. Verse 4, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. The Bible is a reconciliation story from cover to cover, through 66 books. The story of the Bible is the story of reunification. It's the story of exiles finding a homeland. It's the story of orphans finding a father. It's the story of strangers finding each other. And because it is, because we are those strangers made family by the blood of Jesus Christ, Paul prays, verse 5, May the God of patience and comfort grant you, grant us, to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you, that is we, that we may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is praying that we would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, love one another. One another. We're saved by the same blood indwelt by the same Spirit. We worship the same Father. Find unity in that, Paul is saying. Worship together and rejoice together and serve each other in unity. That's where he pulls all of what he's been talking about together. We're saved to unity so we can worship in unity. Receive one another, verse 7, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. It's so easy to find fault with one another, isn't it? That church doesn't baptize right. Their music is all wrong. Their church structure is messed up. Their priorities are backward. It's easy to do that. We're experts. I'm, I'm getting ready to turn pro. I'm just looking for the right endorsement deal. Professional ministry critic. I could do that easy. But Paul's reminding us, on what basis did Jesus receive us? On what basis did he choose us, redeem us, welcome us into his family? Because we were doing things right? No, not hardly. Jesus, listen, Jesus died for us even though we were 180 degrees wrong. We were completely wrong, entirely wrong, Thoroughly depraved and sinful, every one of us. And Jesus died for us anyway. Think about that. Jesus died for us even though we were wrong. In fact, he died for us because we were wrong, because there was no other way for unity between us and God who created us to be restored. What's Paul's point, verse 7? That we should pursue unity with one another on the same basis that God pursued unity with us. Not on the basis of our works, our righteousness, our correctness, but on the basis of mercy. We're not called to be selective and fussy and fastidious, only joining people with people whose doctrine is 100% this and theology is perfectly that and ministry is purely like so. No, we're to bear with one another. Have mercy on one another. Love those who are weak. Teach those who are wrong. That God might be glorified. That's the will of God. And we know that's the will of God. Paul isn't done. Unity, fellowship, one-anotherness. We know that's the will of God because he says it again and again and again in Scripture. But if we needed more proof, which we really shouldn't, but we're us, Paul continues, he says, we can know that's the will of God, verse 8. Because in the church, look what happened. God not only joined lost sinners to himself, he joined Jew and Gentile to one another. What greater example of unity could there be to a Pharisee like Paul? The church, he's saying, is a mirror. The church is a miracle of unity. Israel and the nations, the chosen and the outcast, clean and unclean? worshiping together only God could do that and verse 80 says God has done that now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name and again he says, verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Paul, why are you barraging us with verses? One would have been enough. We get your point. but down the machine gun, Paul. Except, except, He's not sure we do. He's not sure we will grasp this point. There's not, and then there's, what he's saying is there's not only present tense, we can see it with our eyes, unity between Jew and Gentile in the church today. He wants us to lay hold of the fact that was always God's plan. And, and what he just reminded us of is that every part of the Old Testament says so. The historical books, Verse 9, he quotes 2 Samuel. The Pentateuch, verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy. Psalms, the writings. verse, Verse 11, he quotes from Psalms. The prophets. Verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah. God's plan for the church is and always has been unity. Unity between people and him unity between people and each other. Jew and Gentile is what Paul is pointing out, but by extension he's also saying male, female, rich, poor, slave, free. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord is reconciled to him in unity. Whoever repents and trusts in Jesus has unity with God, and those who belong to God, therefore, should have unity with each other which is a miracle, which is only possible through the power of God because we're selfish. But, Paul closes out this section by pointing out we have the power of God. The power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in us. And so Paul prays, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you, fill us, with all joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, abound in the hope, in the promise, in the potential that we actually can dwell in peace and unity with
0: each other. And sometimes we do. And sometimes we don't. What happens when we
1: don't? Most of you have been walking with the Lord long enough. You've seen, you've maybe been on the receiving end of people ignoring all of Paul's heartfelt exhortation, disregarding God's repeated, repeated admonition, devoting all of their time and energy and passion to tearing down when we should be building up. Yet there are those who make it their life's goal to divide rather than unite. What do we do? What do we do when we see that? What do we do do when we experience that?
0: Hector, who is he talking about?
1: He's got to be talking about someone. I'm really not. Yeah, he is. Watch this. He's going to call someone up from the pulpit right now. No, in fact, the opposite of that. It's because we're in a season of peace. It's because right now we don't have that kind of divisiveness, that I know of, that makes this morning the perfect time to have the conversation. If you've you've done premarital counseling with me and Ann, or, or marriage counseling, you've heard us say the wrong time to fight about money is when the checking account is overdrawn. The wrong time to argue about intimacy is when you're in bed. The wrong time to butt heads on parenting is when the kids are in the middle of misbehaving. Why? Because when stuff like that is going on, we're angry, we're frustrated, we're frightened. We're almost certainly in the flesh. And in the flesh, nothing gets solved productively. Nothing gets resolved lovingly. In the flesh, at best, things don't get worse. Probably things get a lot worse. Which is why the right response in any of those situations, right response in any situation really, when we realize we're in the flesh, blood pressure's rising, the volume is escalating, the tone is deepening, the emotion is mounting, our first response should be to stop and step back and pray. God, what do you you want here? God, will you meet me here? God, will you lead me here? And then, re-engage in the Spirit. And you'll know you're in the Spirit because your goal won't be victory. Your goal will be unity. It won't be about winning. It'll be about agreeing. Not with each other so much, but agreeing with God. And if both of you are agreeing with God, guess what? You'll be agreeing with each other. It's the same principle here, is the point. Same thing with what we're talking about this morning. The wrong time to talk about disunity from the pulpit is when there's disunity going on to talk about. Because it would be hard to do it objectively, and even if I did, no one would believe it. And we'd end up just deepening the divide. No, the, the wrong time to teach on divisiveness is when there's divisiveness. The best time is times like now when things are calm and there's nothing significant, nothing that I'm aware of standing in the way of unity. Unity. Now, some might ask, why talk about it at all? Aren't you just tempting fate? I mean, in baseball, you don't talk about a no-hitter. If it's not broken, maybe don't fix it, Patrick. Answer, A, I'm not superstitious. B, things break whether we talk about them or not. You know, Paul's writing what he's writing here. He's he's, he's saying everything he's saying here because he's seen divisiveness in the church. That's why he's exhorting us in the other direction. Paul's seen divisiveness. So of you. Probably everyone here has seen divisiveness in the body of Christ. If you haven't, you will, I promise. And when you do, when divisiveness rears its head, what's the right response? What should happen when divisiveness happens? If you're taking notes this morning, five points. And I couldn't figure out alliteration, so this morning we've got an acronym.
0: U-N-I-F-I. Hey, that spells unify. First point, you.
1: U for understand. Before we can talk about discord, divisiveness, we need to define our terms. We need to be clear on what we mean and what we don't mean. Divisiveness is different than disagreement. As believers in Jesus Christ, we get to disagree with one another. We get to disagree with each other. You get to disagree with me. I get to disagree. We get to disagree. We get to disagree passionately. Sometimes even loudly about all kinds of things. We can and we will and we do, and that's okay. What's the saying when iron sharpens iron? Sometimes sparks fly. That's not what we're talking about. That's not divisiveness. When we talk about divisiveness, we're talking about someone who hears everything that Paul has to say about unity and decides, yeah, they're against it. When we talk about divisiveness, we're talking about someone who knows everything that God thinks about unity, that he delights to see it, and still decides to work against it. When we talk about divisiveness, we're talking about someone who hears God say in Proverbs 6, there's six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And notices in verse 19, the last one on the list is one who sows discord, probably because it's the most important, and decides to do it anyway. But how do we tell the difference? What differentiates godly disagreement from unholy discord? I don't know, a few things to think about. The first is the subject, what are we talking about? What are we disagreeing about so passionately? Because discord... Tends to revolve around secondary stuff, tertiary stuff. Making mountains out of things where God wouldn't even put a molehill. Making much out of things about which the Bible says little. Drawing thick, dark lines of division where God would just as soon use an eraser. The subject can let us know if this is disagreement or discord. The second difference is the object. What's the goal? Do the people involved want to find agreement? Are they pursuing unity? Or do they just want the fight? Are they pursuing unity, or is their goal maybe purity? Everybody who agrees with me gets to stay in. Everybody who disagrees with me needs to get out. Doctrinal or practical purity. The third difference is tactics. Because we can disagree with someone deeply, passionately, and still debate in humility. Still remain open to the possibility we might hear something that we had not heard before. We might learn something we didn't know before. Or we might even be wrong. Tactics is Is there evidence that the people who are disagreeing love each other, or are they trying to embarrass each other, hurt each other, insult each other, shame each other, disqualify each other, and maybe elevate themselves in the process? Subject, object, tactic, product. What's the fruit? Has this sort of thing happened before, and when it happened before, what happened? What was left behind? Did it result in the fragrance of Christ? Or the stink of dirty feet? Is is, is the whole thing characterized by the fruit of the spirit? Or the works of the flesh that Paul talks about in Galatians 5? Contentions, jealousies, outbursts, wrath, ambition, dissension. It's not hard to tell the difference if we know what we're looking for. And once we understand the difference, here's point number two. Once we understand the difference, it probably won't come as a shock if I tell you we need to address, we need to respond to divisiveness. N for need to respond. Too many times we let N stand for nothing. We ignore the divisive behavior. We hope it's just going to go away on its own. And I'll tell you that almost never happens. Because by, it, it, by its nature, it really can't. Because part of what makes the divisive person divisive is they want the fight. They need it. They crave the attention that it brings, the validation that comes with it. They need the opposition because it helps with their self-definition. So they keep, they keep going along until they get it. Opposition, in their mind, is justification for the fight. And so they keep pushing until someone pushes back it doesn't seem rational. It's not. It doesn't seem rational because it isn't, but neither is it rational to expect it to just go away. We want to believe divisiveness is like a cold. It just, you know, it, let it run its course. The reality, is more like cancer. It keeps spreading and infecting until the church or the family is dead or dying, which sounds dramatic, I know, But consider what else Paul has to say on the subject. Go forward a chapter and look at Romans 16, verse 17, where Paul says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly." And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Encounter a divisive person, Paul just said, observe them, note them, and avoid them. Paul just said everything he's been saying about unity doesn't apply in this situation. If you see a divisive person, do not pursue unity with
0: them. What if
1: we can't avoid them? What if they've made themselves part of our fellowship? What if there's someone within our family who calls themselves a believer? Well, if you can't avoid them, Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, send them on their way. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That's heavy. I mean, that's, that's weighty stuff, but that's God's word right there. And God's word just told us, in the face of divisiveness, passiveness, that's not a word, passivity, being passive is not an option. In the face of divisiveness, we cannot be passive God loves unity, but he hates strife and discord. And if we pretend not to see it, we're just being flat-out disobedient. So we need to respond, that's N. So what do I do, I? We follow God's instructions. And we already read the simplest version of that, Titus three ten and 11. Let's read it in the New Living Translation to make it as, as accessible as we can. If people are causing divisions among you, give them a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. I don't think it could be more straightforward. The thing is, though, in fulfilling that instruction, we can't forget all of the other instructions that God has ever given us. And the most important instructions that he ever gives us can all be wrapped up together in one word, love. Give a first and second warning. And when we do, Paul assumes we know. He assumes that he doesn't even have to say it. When you give those warnings, remember to love the person you're warning. Because unlike the divisive person, our goal should be to win a brother or sister. Which, which, Which means before we engage with them, we got to examine our own hearts. What am I bringing to the conversation? Am I carrying bitterness? Am I lugging around all unforgiveness? Is there seething anger just beneath the surface? Am I walking in the spirit? I need to be. Because in all likelihood these are going to be hard conversations. I'm going to need all the wisdom and all of the grace that God can supply, but I'm not going to have either if I'm walking in the flesh and quenching the spirit. You know, probably by the time we get to this point, we're hurt or angry, or frustrated, or frightened, or all of the above, but we can't afford to lead with that. Soft answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. Going angry to any conversation, I'm just going to pour gasoline on the fire. I'm just going to get the opposite of what I want. Our flesh loves justice. We're wired for vengeance. We want to respond to anger with anger. We want to answer accusation with accusation, insult for insult. And it just makes things worse. They started it! What could matter less? Because if if we come in hot and angry, they're still going to walk away vindicated, feeling vindicated. And instead of healing a rift, we're just deepening it. And we got to remember everything that God tells us about how we're to be with one another and approach that divisive person in love because because what do we want to talk about? What's the conversation we want to have? Love. We're not not there to talk about whatever the issue is. Baptism or or music or church structure or priorities. Whatever the disagreement is over, That's irrelevant. We're there to talk about how we're disagreeing. We're not there to talk about the issue. We're there to talk about how we're talking about the issue. If we get get pulled into the merits of of this point or that point, we miss the point. Because again, we can disagree without being divisive. We can hold different perspectives and still work together to build up the body of Christ. If we do it right, our differences will make us stronger. And you know, if we approach the person in love, we're more likely to actually have a conversation rather than get shut down. And if we approach the person in love, we might find they didn't know they were being divisive. They didn't see the impact of their actions. They got carried away in their zeal or, or they misunderstood and they thought that that was what God wanted them to do. The point is we won't know until we talk with them. We won't know until we ask them. And if we come in angry, we probably don't get that chance. We want to be able to discuss. Hey, this is what you're hitting. Is it what you think you're aiming for? Because it really shouldn't be. That first conversation especially, whether it happens in the church, whether it happens with believers in your family, that first conversation is about education, low-temperature discussion. Hey, let's, 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 let's see if we can agree on what's going on and why. Let's see if we can agree on what's okay and what's not. Second conversation, if it's necessary... By God's grace, maybe it won't be. But second conversation, if it is, that, that's probably more admonition or correction. First conversation, lots of benefit of the doubt. Love hopes all things. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe you didn't see. I don't think you understand, but, 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 but here's the line. And this is why it's there, and this is why it's important. Second conversation, hey, couldn't help but notice you're still on the wrong side of the line. Or maybe... You slip back across the line. I I don't know, but you need to be on the other side of the line. And then if things still don't change, if the divisive behavior continues after education and correction, if they keep wanting to talk about how they're justified to do the things they're doing, if they continue to resist correction, if they say, who are you to even talk to me about this? Then it's time to ask them to leave. Time to reject them, New King James. James. Time to have nothing more to do with them. New living. Not at church, not outside church. Which is a false dichotomy because we are the church. (laughs) After a second warning. Does that mean two and only two and never more than two? Never three, absolutely not four? I don't know. It doesn't seem like Paul to be that legalistic. And I don't think he is. Is there grace for the person who's trying to change? Yeah. Yeah. The person who's humbling themselves, you can see softening of their heart, they're asking for help, and they're still tripping over old habits, of course there's grace. Paul's point in saying two strikes and you're out is that the person who doesn't want to change isn't going to change, so let's not sit around waiting for something to happen that isn't going to happen, because people will get hurt in the meantime. The person who doesn't see their divisive, doesn't care they're divisive, who exactly are you to tell me anything? If they don't start to turn around after two conversations, after education and correction, if they don't change after two, they're not gonna change after three or four or six or ten. So don't wait. Don't wait, but don't forget everything we know. Don't forget love. If we're asking somebody to leave, leave the church, leave the family. Understand the purpose of discipline is always restoration. I love you guys. Yeah, if down the road there's genuine repentance, we want to leave the door open, and we want them to know that that door is open, but they need to know that until then they can't be here. It's a message that needs to be communicated gently but unambiguously. We need to speak the truth in love clearly, in front of witnesses to make sure that everybody has the same understanding so everyone knows what was and wasn't said. If we do it right, we're going to have the conversation with sadness and not vengeance. We're going to do everything we can to express with with our words, with our tone. We're not out to hurt them. We just can't let them continue hurting the people around them. It's not a time for discussion or debate. It's it's a a time to deliver a message. We love you, and you need to stay away. And they won't believe it, but, but, but it has to be true, and we need to be in prayer until it's true. We need to love them, whether they believe it or not, because that is what we're doing. Letting sin continue to go unchecked Letting them continue in sin uncorrected isn't loving. It's the opposite of loving. Whether they see it that way or not, we're doing what we're doing to love the body of Christ, to love our family at home, to love the person we're speaking to. And, and, and sometimes that's the end of it. Sometimes it doesn't go any further because a lot of divisive people are bullies. Stand up to them, they crumble. Other times, there's fallout. There's fallout. Which isn't surprising because divisiveness is a form of idolatry, right? Being right, being pure of doctrine, being the center of attention, standing alone against the barbarians. There's a lot of different variations of that idolatry, but divisiveness is idolatry. What happens when you get between someone and their idol? Boom. It's not pretty. Even before you ask them to leave. Sometimes in the, in the very first conversation, you'll be met with anger, with rudeness, with, with crocodile tears and all kinds of promises, with threats of retaliation. I'll split this, church. All of which might tempt us to ask, is confronting divisiveness really worth it? Because I know I'm buying myself a lot of drama. That's why we need to be prayed up going in we need to let the Lord convince us we're doing ministry in his name. And if it's in his name, it's going to be in his spirit. We need to let him remind us in the moment that it's worth it for what, whatever we're getting back. We're doing it for good reasons, for God reasons. Because the bottom line is, if we don't have that hard conversation and love, other people will get hurt, will keep getting hurt, because by the time you're having the conversation, damage is already happening. Kicking the can down the road, convincing each other, well, let's just wait and see how it plays. That, yeah, that might delay an immediate blow up and it might make things easier for a while. But the long-term consequences of letting discord continue unchecked are always worse. Unity will be compromised, that's obvious. Credibility of leaders, leader of the church, leaders of the family, the credibility will suffer. Relationships will be damaged, discipleship will be hindered. The reputation of the church will collapse. Outreach will cease because everybody's focused on the drama within. And fear wins. Fear wins. The threat of fallout is not a reason to not confront divisiveness. It's a reminder why we have to. We have to. We have to do it well. We have to do it with the goal of reconciliation. We have to do it remembering that the spectrum between subtle and blunt is not the same as the spectrum between nice and nasty. I can be blunt and gentle, blunt and loving, blunt and kind. I have to do it prayerfully. We have to do it in community, never unilaterally. We have to do it confidently. Odds are it will not be fun. And if you think about it, it shouldn't be fun. If it's fun, it's vengeance, and that's not what we're about. But it will be in obedience. Matthew 18, 20. We quote the verse a lot. We quote it out of context. Jesus is saying, hey, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there in your midst. That's, that's not just a blanket promise for everyone all of the time doing whatever they're doing. Jesus, in context, is saying very specifically, when you come together, To ask someone to leave the fellowship, I will be there with you. How comforting is that? That when we do this hard thing, God will meet us in it. Got to do it prayerfully, in community, confidently. And finally, last point this morning, got to do it humbly.
0: Humbly doesn't start with why, Patrick. Okay? But if we point a finger, there's three pointing back at us. If we point
1: fingers, if we're going to take on the ministry of saying, hey, you're divisive, and we can't let it go on, if we're going to be so bold in God's name as to point that finger, we have to let those other three point back at you and me. That's where we get the why. Are we, you and me, the divisive ones.
0: Are we sure? Are we sure that we're sure? If we don't, if we don't consider the possibility, we're hypocrites. I'm reading
1: a blog by David Guzik the other day, Calvary pastor, he did a men's retreat for us a few years ago. And he, he was wondering in this blog if the biggest challenge, the biggest challenge facing believers today,
0: isn't pettiness. The more I think about it, the more I think he might be right. Because doesn't the church seem to be
1: developing an unbelievable ability to take small things and decide their hills to die on? To take trivial issues and declare, this is the line of demarcation between the true believers and the make-believers. We need to deal with discord in the church. There's no question. We need to deal with it biblically. We need to deal with it decisively. But along the way, we got to walk by a mirror and check for planks in our own eyes. Paul says, Romans 16, 17, note those who cause division and offense. Lord, is it possible? That's me. Before we confront anyone for being divisive, we need to make sure that we're not the ones whispering suspicions exaggerating problems for for effect, distorting others' positions to make ourselves look good, serving our own appetites for attention, slandering those who are in opposition to us on our pet issues. And the best way to make sure that we're not is to be diligent to do the opposite to pursue unity the way that paul has been saying the way the holy spirit says again and again in his word the best way to make sure we're not the divisive ones is to seek and pray and pursue and labor to do what paul says in ephesians 4 to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And when we do, we get to look
0: around and say, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when we work for and delight in unity. Father, we thank you. And we will spend eternity thanking you for
1: the, eternity, for the, for, for the unity that we have with you, the, eternity that, uh, the unity that we have in you. Words fail, Lord.
0: <sighs> we thank you for the price that you paid for our unity, for our reconciliation to our creator. And we know, we read, we understand you've entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. We're beggars sent out into the world to tell the other beggars where to find the bread. And if we're biting and scratching and clawing at one another, no one will believe it. Teach us unity. Teach us peace. That we might be ambassadors for the Prince of Peace, not in word only, but in deed. Teach us unity, that the world might know that we're Christians by our love. That we might make the unbeliever jealous for what we have, the family that you've brought us into. He tell us to be ready to give everyone a reason for the hope that's within us. Make that hope manifest. Put it on display through the body of Christ, loving, serving, sacrificing for one another.